Hello to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners. I know it wasn't that long ago that I was on the air with you all last, but I must say I'm glad to be back on the air again uh, within a short period of time. You know, um, I'm glad um, that I have a lot of great uh, listeners out there, or just followers, I should say. The only reason I probably say it is because I'm just glad to know that there are so many people out there who um, enjoy learning about history. And while, yes, history can be unpleasant, the most important thing is that, you know, we do everything we can to make sure that we learn as much about the past so that the same mistakes don't get made in the present or let alone in the future. But I think at the same time, it's also good to learn about history that either has not been um, covered in textbooks, from that is from past textbooks, or let alone history that we might only um, be able to obtain about in terms of going to a particular region. So when authors, most notably like Michael Schumacher, who has written a, a handful of books on uh, Great Lakes shipwrecks, including the um, including uh, this one that we're uh, discussing, uh, being November's Fury, the Deadly Great Lakes Hurricane of 1913. I think it's fair to say that uh, when we read about um, shipwrecks and about um, what we're also talking about with this um, hurricane of 1913 and how it's um, impacting um, ships all along Great Lakes waters, we get a better understanding of, of how the lakes operate. I mean, yes, we see them from a distance, or yes, we might see them up close and think the waters are so serene and peaceful, but yet we don't realize that even Great Lakes waters have a mind of their own, and that if the weather conditions are just right, that storms can come out of nowhere, most notably in November, and um, when those storms do come, they come at such a short moment's notice that um, weather forecasters are scrambling to get, you know, a warning out, even with today's sophisticated technology, um, nature itself, you know, yes, weathermen or weather reporters can predict um, the weather, but it doesn't mean that, um, it doesn't mean that, uh, for one, that they might always be on, on, um, target with their forecasts, but it's just the, the greater elements of Mother Nature, and, and when Mother Nature strikes, it's a question of how well prepared are you going to be even when it's um, least expected. So I think we have to remind ourselves that whenever we are learning about the Great Lakes, we have to be reminded of the fact that, yes, when we see them up close or from a near distance or see pictures of them, we think that it's easy to think that they're all peaceful and serene and, and calm waters, but what we fail to realize is that uh, is that when uh, the weather changes, so many unknowns can occur. You know, we can be prepared, but even with all of our preparation, Mother Nature will still have the final say. So I think it's uh, important to be reminded that um, that even our bodies of water, like the Great Lakes, are of historical significance, and even they too have had many of stories to share, considering that thousands of vessels have perished along those waters dating back to 1679, when Robert LaSalle uh, built his uh, for, built his ship known as uh, the Le Griffon that uh, perished along Lake Erie's waters. Uh, given that uh, Le Griffon was going uh, back to Europe with a vast supply of uh, fur pelts that would have been used to um, make such fine luxuries as uh, fine hats, for example. But, um, but for almost now 243, rather I should say for 343 years, I should say, uh, the Great Lakes have, um, have wreaked havoc on ships of all sizes so let's just be reminded that no matter how far we've come, we still have a lot to learn, and we still have to be reminded that when it comes to being out on the waters, that Mother Nature calls the shots, and she will have the final say over whether or not, um, 
over whether or not survival um, in general prevails. But maybe it's fair to say that us humans are the ones that um, that have um, the ability to determine whether or not our actions that we are engaging in will um, ultimately determine that the greater likelihood of our survival along the waters. Well, I think it's fair to say that it might be time to move on and uh, start focusing on this uh, particular segment. And what we're going to be discussing in this segment is um, some unique uh, various um, aspects, or rather uh, elements, I should say, when, I, when with regards to elements, we're going to be learning more about um, such things um, like wind velocity. I know I've mentioned some of that already, but we're going to be learning some other stuff regarding wind velocity. Uh, and we're going to also learn some other um, essential uh, factors that uh, do play parts, do play a part when it comes to um, a storm that brews or a storm that is uh, making its way. Um, we should just be reminded that storms just don't happen with a magic wand. There are all kinds of um, elements that um, play, a fa play out in terms of uh, factors that contribute behind the greater storm itself. And we will also learn about uh, survival along the waters of the Great Lakes uh, involving um, a couple of ships. So our first uh, leadoff question for this um, podcast segment is going to be the following. To um, November's Fury, the Deadly Great Lakes Hurricane of 1913 by Michael Schumacher. So fast, let's fasten our seatbelts and get ready to go. Uh, so our first leadoff question is the following. When did uh, Captain John Duddleson of the L.C. Waldo first begin working in, commercial, in the commercial shipping industry? Remember we talked about um, the L.C. Waldo uh, from the previous podcast, and we um, learned some um, things, most notably that uh, Captain Duddleson um, left on the morning of the 7th to uh, go on to uh, Lake Superior's waters. But by the time he and his crew um, departed from uh, their port station on, out onto the waters of Superior, the Weather Bureau had not issued that uh, gale warning for western Minnesota. So when do you all think Captain John Duddleson of the L.C. Waldo first began uh, working in the commercial shipping industry? Did he start working in the shipping commercial shipping industry before the Civil War began? Did he uh, start at, just after the Civil War? What do you all think? Do you think he began um, this um, in, in this industry before or right after the Civil War? Uh, the answer is cho choice B, right after the Civil War. He began uh, working in the commercial shipping industry during the summer of 1867. So that's two years after uh, Robert E. Lee surrendered to Ulysses Grant in April of 1865 at the Appomattox uh, Courthouse in Appomattox, Virginia. So come 1913, um, it's fair to say that uh, John Duddleson, uh, captain of the L.C. Waldo, has been in the uh, commercial shipping industry for 46 years. That's a lot of time. And it turns out that Duddleson himself was a Civil War veteran. He was a part of, um, he served under General William Tecumseh Sherman and was even um, part of the uh, famous march uh, to sea. I should uh, point out that, yes, uh, by 1913, uh, Captain Duddleson, it would be fair to say that um, he's been in the, uh, he's about 65 years old. And he followed in the footsteps of two uncles whom had made their uh, profession by working along the waters. Now, uh, he started out working as a wheelsman. Does anybody know what a wheelsman does? A wheelsman or a wheelsman is a crew member whom steers the boat. And come the age of uh, 27, or rather I should say when uh, John Duddleson um, reached the age of 27, he began commanding his first vessel. So it would be fair to say that, um, that he would have commanded his first vessel somewhere during uh, the time of the mid-1870s. Now, um, 
when do you all think the L.C. Waldo was first built? Was it built um, before 1900 or um, after 1900? It was uh, built before 1900 in the year 1895. But come spring of 1896, Captain Duddleson, or rather I should say John Duddleson, became the L.C. Waldo's uh, commander. And what do you know? By 1913, he is still commander of the L.C. Waldo. So the L.C. Waldo has only known one commander, being uh, that of uh, Captain John Duddleson. Now, given... Um, Duddleson's, given that Duddleson's boat was already out on Lake Superior's waters before and after the Weather Bureau had issued its uh, gale warning for western Minnesota, being that of Friday, November 7th, how bad had weather conditions turned? Well, um, would you say that they um, turned severe? Would you say that they had become moderate, or um, would you say that um, they were hardly bad at all? Well, it would be wishful thinking to say that they were hardly bad at all, but the answer is uh, choice A. The um, weather conditions had um, turned very, very severe, meaning that they were taking a turn for the worse. The skies had um, intensely darkened. You know, when I think of dark skies, I think of um, a um, dark black uh, sky or let alone a dark blue sky that to me indicates that um, severe thunderstorms are about to make their way or about to happen. So the skies have, in, have become intensely darkened. And then you've got uh, waves uh, that are building, that is waves... The seas are building with waves, and these waves are showing signs of that they are going to accelerate on a scale that maybe hasn't been seen before. So we're looking at intense levels of acceleration that it's only just a, a short matter of time before these waves are going to uh, make their impact. Captain Duddleson wanted to go uh, another 45 miles to the southwest where the Keweenaw Peninsula lied and he hoped that by reaching the Keweenaw Peninsula that his uh, ship and crew would be able to wait out the storm. Now I have a map here on the uh, first um, part of uh, this book of November's Fury and if you, um, by looking at the map here the uh, Keweenaw uh, Peninsula is um, not far. It's it's a peninsula that's on Lake Superior. It's uh, south of Isle Royale, and it's just um, nearby Eagle Harbor and Cooper Harbor. And to the south of Keweenaw Peninsula lies Marquette, Michigan. So we're obviously talking about the Upper Peninsula, or what is known as Michigan's UP. So, yes, for Captain Duddleson, his goal was to go another 45 miles to the southwest where his um, where the, his ship and crew could uh, wait out the storm by docking in the Keweenaw Peninsula. However, Mother Nature had other plans in store. And what do you know? A rogue wave out of nowhere, folks. And believe me, these rogue waves come out of nowhere you know, um, sea activity along the lakes can be spotted, but sometimes it can be too late. You know, you might uh, be able to ride out one or two waves, but you never know what can be coming in the opposite direction. So, believe it or not, a rogue wave made its way over the L.C. Waldo stern. Whenever you hear of something like the ship's stern, what does that refer to, folks? A ship's back. The back of the ship. So the rogue wave made its way over the L.C. Waldo stern. And if that was bad enough, folks, what, what do you think this wave ended up doing? Did it, do did it cause further damage to the L.C. Waldo? Yes. This rogue wave 
took out the front of the ship's uh, pilot house. And what is the pilot house? It's the um, ship's uppermost deck where the wheel and map room are located, including the front of the um, Texas. What is a Texas? We're, we're not talking about the state of Texas, folks. Whenever you hear of a term called Texas on a um, Great Lakes vessel, for example, that refers to the deck below the pilot house where the captain and crew's living quarters are located. Can you believe that, folks? This rogue wave not only made its way over the L.C. Waldo stern, but it was, it was so powerful that it took out front of the pilot house, the uppermost deck, and it also did damage to uh, the front of the Texas, being um, the deck below the pilot house. The rogue wave was so intense, folks, that it, that it also blew out the electricity in front of the boat. Can you imagine now, This, let's say you're one of the crewmen aboard the L.C. Waldo, and it's bad enough that um, the front of the pilot house has been taken out, and... Um, the front part of the Texas has been now has now been taken out, and now all of a sudden, you you don't have any electricity. So you might as well be stuck in the dark ages. Captain Duddleson and his crew did survive, but the resources were very very limited, given the wave's destruction. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if this was a 30 or a 40 or a 50 foot wave, regardless of just how high it was. It's fair to say that, that the answer is pure, simple and clear. There wasn't just destruction. There was um, significant destruction, meaning, resulting in, uh, in loss of electricity. However, uh, Captain Duddleson and his crew... Um, sought to uh, still make it all the way towards the Keweenaw Peninsula. Can I'm thinking to myself right now, how in the world can this um, ship, given that it's lost electricity, there's so much other internal damage, how, how in the world can this ship even make it to the Keweenaw Peninsula, given that it's at least another 40 miles away? Well, for Captain Duddleson, you know, there's not a whole lot of um, options, but he is very, very determined to get there, and with the intent that once upon they, once upon getting to this uh, peninsula, the ship will drop anchor and go about sailing once waters become uh, calmer. But hope uh, went away. <laughs> Once the rudder stopped working because of uh, of the uh, rogue waves impact, so you know the rudder is uh, the device that um, helps get the um, engines going. And if the rudder isn't working, then how else are you going to be able to navigate along the waters? Your best hope, though, would be to have um, to have the wind or the wind currents alone uh, drift this boat to where it will to where it'll end up maybe hit, um, grounding or, or what we would say is uh, running aground. Now we're going to uh, come back to the LC Waldo in a little bit, but I think the next um, important um, piece of information to talk about are um, elements of Mother Nature, not that we haven't discussed that already, but I do believe that talking about some other elements of Mother Nature uh, will help get us give us a better understanding of what um, the Elsie Waldo um, still has uh, left to go up against, as well as some other ships um, whom are um, in the nearby vicinity of the Elsie Waldo along Lake Superior. Uh, what is the main element uh, behind wave development? Okay, you know, waves just don't happen on their own, but there has to be some kind of element behind the formation of waves. What do you all think is truly the main element? Is it wind? Or is it... Um, what, I mean, do, do you think it is it wind or is it something else? Uh, 
The actual the answer is wind. How so? Well, the higher the wind velocity, or when we think of wind velocity, we think of wind speed. So uh, the higher the wind velocity, being wind speed, the faster uh, water moves, resulting in greater wave heights. Okay, so if we know that um, the greater the wind speed that is taking place, that means the greater the likelihood that um, water is going to move at a much faster pace that will result in greater wave heights if the other if other conditions are are just right to where um, extreme wave heights um, are forming. Now, height and wave intensities are reflected by something that's referred to as fetch. Of course, when we hear the word fetch, what do we think of? Like going to fetch a stick or, or fetch something that, um, that, is, that has um, fallen down and we need to pick it up. Well, in terms of meteorology, uh, when you hear the word fetch, that refers to the distance at which a wave travels without breaking apart. So, you know, yes, you can have um, strong wind speed, but in order for the, for the um, wave itself to be perfect and consistent and not breaking apart, there has to be, um, there has to be um, a strong fetch. In other words, that wa the wave itself has to travel a long distance to maintain its um, composure or to maintain its um to maintain its um composition to where once it uh, has begun it's going to finish with its intended target had wind velocity caused more impact to vessels along great lakes waters from november 7th to the 10th of 1913 versus opposite being by land what do you all think? Had wind velocity caused more impact to vessels along Great Lakes waters from, from the four-day span of November 7th to the 10th of 1913 versus uh, the opposite being by land? Uh, the answer is yes. Uh, large waves charged boats from one direction, whereas the wind blew so strong that its impact was felt from the opposite direction. So in other words, not everything was happening on one end. You have uh, forces that are coming from both ends. Large waves are coming from one direction and the wind is blowing strong from the opposite direction to where at some point they'll meet up in between and cause um, greater, um, cause uh, what we call greater fury or greater levels of fury along the waters. Wind velocity made its presence known around the Great Lakes shoreline. So it is fair to say that even the shorelines of the Great Lakes waters are not spared. Well, um, what do you think uh, what do you think lies near uh, shorelines? Of course we could say this even with um, with the coast uh, that is like you know, beachfront properties along the East Coast, uh, being the Atlantic Ocean, or uh, along the uh, waters of the Pacific Ocean on the West Coast of the United States. But um, shoreline along the Great Lakes, can re we can think of like um, homes uh, whose uh, properties are not far from the shoreline. So, if, so they obviously are going to bear the brunt of the storm. So windows, for example, um, windows from a home can be um, taken out or uh, they can be they can be blown in you can have trees being uprooted which did happen and even worse telephone poles got knocked down so if the telephone poles got knocked down folks what does that happen what does that mean if the telephone poles got knocked down you've lost electricity and we're not talking for a couple of hours we could Depending on where you live and the, the intensity of the storm, you could be without power for a week or maybe two at most. Did uh, wind velocity make its presence known to cities nearby or right on Lake Michigan? 
I would say the answer is a definitive yes. Now, um, when I think of cities on Lake Michigan, there are a couple that come to my mind, uh, one of them being Chicago, Illinois, another uh, Milwaukee, Wisconsin, Green Bay, Wisconsin's another, and Lake Michigan goes all the way um, as far south as into uh, Gary, Indiana, which is uh, located in northwest Indiana, just west of South Bend. Gary is um, not far from uh, Chicago, Illinois, for that matter. But uh, Lake Michigan's southernmost um, point is right along the line between Illinois and Indiana, uh, Chicago to the west and Gary to the east. So, um, so it is fair to say that, yes, that uh, wind velocity did make its presence known to cities nearby or right on Lake Michigan. But for starters, uh, Lake Michigan's southern end saw winds from the north build large-scale seas, meaning that waves, or I should say rogue waves, were going to unleash their fury. Secondly, cities like Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and Chicago, Illinois witnessed huge, wa huge waves take out, uh, most notably in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, um, an existing breakwater project was um, severely impacted by the storm. And do any of you all know what a breakwater project um, is uh, in reference to? Well, um, a breakwater, rather, I should say, is a barrier that is built out into a body of water that whose purpose is to protect the coast, or let alone, I should say, a harbor, from rogue waves. And so, therefore, folks, to think about this, a breakwater was taken out by these, by these massive rogue waves. So even a breakwater, no matter how far it's out into a body of water, is not immune from Mother Nature's uh, fury in the form of rogue waves. In Chicago, Illinois, a couple of men got lifted into the air only to be sent into the Chicago River. Can you imagine witnessing somebody getting lifted into the air only to be thrown into a river. This isn't magic, folks. I mean, this is this is real life right here. I don't know if these men even survived or not, but the sheer force of being thrown thrown so violently into a river, you know, you would hope that they could have survived, but but you just don't know. I mean, that's how uh, unpredictable Mother Nature uh, can be. I'm sure many of y'all have heard of this uh, term before, but I'll ask it to you all. Um, what is a trough? A trough can be can mean a variety of things, but in the sense of uh, weather, a trough is. I'll get to the trough um, part um, here in just a moment in terms of the answer, but I think it's fair to say that uh, we need to know that there that um, that a wave has its highest surface and it has its lowest point, meaning its bottom point. So given that the highest surface part of a wave is referred to as a crest, the trough is the lowest point of a wave, or let alone of a wave cycle or span. So crest is at the top, the trough is at the bottom. Wave height was determined by uh, vertical distance. Okay, if horizontal means going downward, vertical should mean that you're going across. So wave height is determined by vertical distance, aka going across between the crest and the trough. So if we're dealing with 30, 40, or 50 foot waves, that crest is going to be very, very tall. And even though the trough might be at the bottom, the trough still carries power. So when you've got these two forces working together, a crest and a trough, to help support a rogue wave, the results are going to be uh, beyond powerful, if you ask me. Did a ship uh, endure a trough? Not just a trough, but a trough's wrath. 
Yes, that ship was referred was known as the Cornell. The Cornell was a 454-foot straight-decker. Um, she endured uh, a trough's wrath through sudden wind direction shift changes. You know, it's one thing for winds to be coming, say, from the north, and all of a sudden they come to the come out of the northwest. That's yes, you know, one could say, oh, well, they're still going. The winds are still coming in a northerly direction. Well, just because they go from north to northwest, it doesn't mean that uh, everything's going to remain the same. These sudden uh, wind direction shift changes caused large seas to slam directly into um, the Cornell's bow, and the front being the front section. The vessel was caught in the trough for 13 hours, folks. And believe it or not, the ship miraculously survived. Uh, to me, that is a true um, act of God. Um, God must have been uh, looking after them. Uh, but then again, I, I think it would be fair to say that even God himself, he's always looking after the sailors, or rather I should say the captain and the crews of the ships, even when the skies of November turn gloomy. Another um, unique uh, line to Gordon Lightfoot's song, The Wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald, which he uh, composed uh, a year after the, uh, the Fitzgerald sank, uh, which would have happened in 1976. There was a line in that song that was uh, titled as follows. Does anyone know where the love of God goes when the waves turn the minutes to hours? In other words, um, many of Storm's sailors would be accustomed to seeing waves come, but not last very long. But when a succession of waves, like those three sisters' waves, come, it, it feels as though these waves are coming left and right without any end in sight, and the minutes do become hours because, you know, for the crew that's enduring the wrath of the waves, they have to ask themselves, how much longer can this go on before we become, before we succumb to Mother Nature? You know, I, I don't think it's a question of God punishing the, uh, the captain and his crew, but it's, but, you know, God is looking after them. And yes, it's it, it's tragic to know that um, that yes, there have been thousands of shipwrecks along these waters, but for those whom have perished along the high seas of the Great Lakes, once they have passed on and they and their ships are down at the bottom, that has become their resting ground. It's their place of. Um, it's their place of respite to where they are no longer suffering. That's my take on it, but um, but we just should remember that even when um, when the waves do turn um, the minutes into hours, we just need to be reminded that God is still looking after those whom are in um, whom are facing peril along these waters. Now, uh, come Saturday morning of November eighth was Captain John Doddleson's vessel, the L.C. Waldo, okay, we're coming back to the Waldo, was D Captain Doddleson's uh, vessel, the L.C. Waldo, still afloat? Yes, but given how much damage was already sustained internally, um, the greater challenge pertained to the course of direction. In other words, where is this ship going to uh, go? Captain Duddleson really wants the ship to somehow miraculously um, make it to uh, the Keweenaw Peninsula, but without a rudder and without any electricity, it's going to take an act of God for Duddleson and his crew to even survive, regardless of where they get, um, regardless of what direction the winds will take this boat. So, regardless of how bad uh, conditions presented themselves, and this is something we've got to be reminded of, folks, a captain has to remain calm even under the most dire of circumstances. So, a captain 
can never really show his true fear. In other words, a captain has a right to be concerned. But if a captain starts panicking, if a captain starts to lose it, how do you think that's going to make the rest of the crew feel? Is it fair to say that the rest of the crew will still have confidence in his captain? Or in their captain, I should say? Probably not. So a captain, even under the most dire of circumstances, like given what has happened now with the L.C. Waldo, Captain John Duddleson has got to remain calm and he has got to, um, he's got to let his crew know that, yes, internally he is worried, but he can't let it be shown to the point where if it does become known, how is the crew going to respond and how, are, how is everybody going to work together to get through, um, to get through this uh, current crisis? So a captain's facial expressions alone could determine where his state of mind might lead him to in decision-making. And as I said earlier, captains could show concern. But the problem is this. Once fear sets in, all good qualities of effective leadership to good judgment become jeopardized. So the storm on Saturday morning of November 8th was producing 70-mile-per-hour winds. Sending the L.C. Waldo towards the path of where the Keweenaw Peninsula lied. Okay, that, that's good. But concerns knowing that the vessel itself could hit a shoal. And what is a shoal, folks? Uh, a shoal is a shallow area of water that contains a sandbar, a reef. The concerns, knowing that if this, if his ship hit a shoal, did in fact happen, that his uh, ship could become so damaged to where it would only be a matter of minutes before, um, before the uh, the unthinkable would happen. Meaning that the ship could sink, uh, crew people could die. Um, I mean, pretty much uh, the whole um, the whole crew, including the captain, their lives could be um, could be in peril. Did the L.C. Waldo end up grounding? Yes, the vessel's bow struck first, uh, given it had gone right onto the rocks. The deck started splitting in the midsection. That's not good, folks. If a deck is splitting in the midsection, um, that means um, that a ship is in um, not just in trouble, it's in major trouble. Captain Duddleson notified the engine room with the following order. Flood the ship! Flood the ship! What does it mean by flooding the ship? Meaning that water weight would prevent the stern being the boat's back section from further sliding. Okay, so flooding the ship in this case is good. That let fill the ship with as much water, because if there's not a whole lot of water, then the greater the likelihood that the ship's back section is going to slide backwards to where it will ultimately sink, and sink fast enough to where, sadly, the crew... Uh, would face uh, the inevitable ultimate death. So the key here to flooding the ship is that the greater amount of water weight would prevent the stern, the boat's back section, from further sliding. The good news is that everyone aboard the L.C. Waldo, including Captain Duddleson, survived the grounding. However, there wasn't a whole lot um, available at the current moment for long-term survival. In other words, they didn't have any um, significant amount of food rations that, were, that would last them for at least a week at most. So, and to make matters worse, uh, there was no heat aboard this ship, considering that electricity had been taken out. So, and lastly, there's no means of escaping the vessel. Why not? Well, doesn't this isn't the ship supposed to have lifeboats? Yes, but the storm took out all the lifeboats. I don't know how many lifeboats the L.C. Waldo had, folks, but if the if the storm took out this ship's lifeboats, 
then that ought to tell you something right there as to just how strong this storm was. You know, it's one thing for, as we said earlier, for a wave to go over um, the ship's bow. It's one thing for the waves to go over the stern. But for rogue waves to take out uh, parts of the pilot house, the Texas being the deck below the pilot house, to taking out... Um, uh, to to uh, being so strong that um, that electricity was taking out being taken out, and now all of a sudden it's taken out lifeboats. Yeah, that is uh, what what I might like to call the equivalent of a three sisters uh, wave or three sisters waves. The first one coming fast, usually about um, it's uh, bigger than the average wave, being one and a half times bigger than an average wave. The second one following just as ever so closely behind the first that third wave being the equivalent of the height of um of the first two waves yeah to me the uh the destruction that the lc waldo endured might as well have been the equivalent to a three sisters uh waves um best case scenario now there was um another um freighter that somehow um, ran aground along the Keweenaw Peninsula, just a few miles west of where the L.C. Waldo had run aground. This uh, ship was a British-built freighter known as the Turret Chief. It was a 257-foot um, freighter. However, um, despite the fact that this freighter did um, run aground and it did um, hit bottom, it hit bottom in an area that was less hostile, meaning that um, the turret chief did not have to engage in what was called flood the ship. The uh, turret chief um, got pushed further inland, meaning that it, her crewmen were able to climb off the boat and they were able to go about constructing a makeshift uh, shelter and they um, stayed in their makeshift shelter until help arrived. I tell you, you've got to be creative in times of uh, crisis. You know, it's one thing to be in fear, but the greater the fear you are in, the greater the likelihood that you may not survive. Fear can be a dangerous thing, but you also have to uh, know what what is necessary to survive when Mother Nature unleashes a one-two uh, punch, and and it's going to require um, not only reinventing how you survive, but also how you adapt for the time that you are um, that you are uh, caught in the um, crossfire of uh, Mother Nature's wrath. So, in a, in a nutshell, what is happening right now along the Great Lakes waters? is really a means of survival of the fittest. How many months out of the year were sailors usually gone for? I'll give you all some choices. Um, is it choice A, 10 months? Choice B, 6 months? Or choice C, 8 months? The answer is choice C, 8 months. So if you think about it, there's 12 months in a year. Let's do the math. Um, 8 into 12 uh, 8 into 2 goes 4, uh, 12 into 2 6, we can break it down a little bit more, 4 into 2 goes 2, 6 into 2, 3. So, sailors were gone um, two-thirds out of the year, that's 67% of the year. So, what does that tell us right there, folks? The other one-third of the time, um, they are um, not out on the water, being 33% of the year. Uh, for sailors whom were married, time away from work, that is, being that they could be with their families long-term, um, took place um, during the winter months when the lakes froze over and boats were undergoing um, essential uh, service repairs so that they would be ready to go come the next uh, shipping season, which would be at the start of spring. The non-winter months did allow um, some opportunities for families to be together, 
depending on whether they lived in or near a port town. Now, most uh, families um, whose loved ones uh, worked um, in the shipping industry did live um, live in and around uh, port towns, like most notably uh, Rogers City, Michigan, which is in uh, the northern uh, most part of Michigan, not too terribly far from the um, from the mainland that uh, connects the Upper Peninsula via the Mackinac Bridge. So, but at the same time, we should be reminded that there were families um, who were not, um, who did not reside near uh, port towns. Um, history has uh, shown that some uh, members or some uh, crew members did not hail from an area that uh, bordered, say, Lake Superior, Lake Michigan. Some crewmen lived uh, as far away as Iowa, and the husband um, went to um, live um, eight months out of the year um, in a um, dwelling that was not far from um, the port city, whereas the rest of his family um, resided um say in Iowa, for example. So we have to keep in mind that some families were not always um, nearby uh, port towns. So while husbands were away on the waters, the wives ran the home from managing the family, uh, running, um, or rather I should say, maintaining the finances, to raising children, to staying on top of things in general. Somebody's got to take care of things, um, given that we have to remember during this time, um, most women uh, did not go to work. Uh, the majority of women were staying at home. The husbands were the primary breadwinners. Has anybody heard, I, I think most of you probably know of this, um, the Sioux Locks. That's spelled S-O-O. -O, Sioux Locks. When do you all think the Sioux Locks uh, were constructed? In other words, were they constructed prior to 1913? Yes. The first locks opened in 1855. That is six years before the Civil War began and 30 years after the Erie Canal was finally completed. The Sioux locks are a set of locks that are uh, parallel, meaning they are side by they go side by side, allowing uh, the ships to travel between uh, Lake Superior and the Lower Great Lakes. The Sioux Locks are located along the St. Mary's River between Lakes Superior and Huron, between Michigan's UP, aka Upper Peninsula, and the Canadian province of Ontario. So um, there is Sault Ste. Marie, Michigan, and then you have Sault Ste. Marie, Ontario. Those cities, even though one's in the United States and one's in Canada, they are not far from bordering one another. Who is uh, W.C. Mosher? I don't expect you all to know who W.C. Mosher is, but it, it is worth uh, mentioning about him. He was a captain of a vessel known as the George Stevenson, a 407-foot-long ship. Come Sunday, November 9th, Captain Mosher got awakened by his first mate whom had spotted a freighter positioned improperly on the rocks right around Gull Island, which is located in St. James Township, uh, Charlevoix County, Michigan. And in case any of you are wondering, is Gull Island in inhabited? Uh, the answer is no, it's an uninhabited island. Captain Mosher could see just how bad the freighter nearby appeared. And it just so happens, folks, that this freighter was none other than the L.C. Waldo. Captain Mosher spotted a crew person from the L.C. Waldo raising a distress flag only to have one of his own people display a red and white response flag. So in other words, Captain Mosher has been able to confirm that there are survivors on this uh, ship. He was uh, convinced early on that maybe nobody had survived, but the, um, the better the view he got, thanks to this um, crew person who raised a distress flag, he knew that there were still people on the ship and they were in dire need of assistance. Well, to make a long story short, the L.C. Waldo crew did survive. But how did they survive? Well, they sur survived by means of uh, heat. Well, 
you know, obviously they, they didn't have any electricity on the ship uh, because of the rogue wave, but how did they come up with heat? They used, the crew took wooden material from furniture to picture frames that got broken into pieces, which helped fuel the fire built in the uh, Waldo's bathtub. I tell you, once again, folks, people have to be creative. I mean, I think we have to be creative all the time, but in, but the wrath of the storm and what has uh, contributed those whom are uh, still in survival mode, you either are going to make it or you're not going to make it. But if you are going to make it, you're going to have to come up with some creative stuff and you've got to do it fast. And to take uh, wooden furniture as well as wooden picture frames and to be able to break them into pieces and, um, and be able to... Um, help um, fuel a fire, that is, to keep uh, the flames going. That's what I call brilliant ingenuity under the most uh, trying of circumstances. So the crew of the L.C. Waldo deserves to be um, praised for their um, quick decision-making, and they are a good example here of survival of the fittest under the most uh, trying of circumstances. Well, I... Thank you for your time, as always, and I look forward to being back on the air again. And when we are on the gear, on the air again next, we're going to be um, into what's called uh, Chapter 2 of this book uh, with the uh, title called So Violent a Storm, Apocalypse on Lake Huron. If I'm not mistaken, we had mentioned uh, early on that um, eight vessels uh, sank on Lake Huron, resulting in the loss of... Um, epic proportion of human life and it is important that we discuss about um, what took place on Lake Huron and uh, when I'm on the air again next uh, we will um, we will uh, start learning um, the most essential of information about just how quickly weather conditions changed on Lake Huron to where um, the unthinkable did in fact happen I don't know if we'll be able to get it all done in one podcast, but what I do know is that with time, we will be able to learn everything there is essential. Because remember, folks, with five great lakes, I think it's fair to say that all five great lakes, Superior, Michigan, Huron, Erie, Ontario, they're all going to feel this wrath. Superior's already felt it, but Huron's going to feel it. Michigan's probably feeling it already. But the bottom line is, is that nobody's escaping the wrath. There will be those who survive. Sadly, there will be those who won't. Yes, there will be acts of heroism, bravery, but there will also sadly be acts of cowardice. Not on the part, not so much on the part of ship captains, but on shipping by shipping companies and officials, which we will talk some more of, about in the next podcast session. Well, thank you again, and I look forward to being back on the air. Uh, thank you again, as always, for being ardent listeners. You guys are amazing. Continue um, to do what you all do and continue to get that word out with Anchor Podcast. Thank you and stay safe.